This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Welcome back to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia, your host. That doesn't change. And I am joined this week. I'm really excited. I'm joined by most of the two thirds of the writing team between between behind the amazing book on a sea of glass. I have Jay Kent Layton and I have Tad Bitch with me. Hi, guys. Hi, how are you? Hey. Did I say your nice name? Nice to be with you today. Nice to be with you too. Did I say both your names right? I, I try to make I try to ask about the names and then I forgot. No, you got it. Perfect. You got it. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. I'm I'm really glad to have you here because I will admit that until I started getting back into sort of looking at Titanic as um, an interest of mine, I hadn't heard of your book. Um, I, I, you know, I think a lot of Titanic books, unfortunately, don't quite cross over into like the New York Times bestsellers list. And I spend a lot of time in my house, so I don't exactly go out looking at books. But then I started looking at lists and your book kept cropping up over and over and over again as one of the top reads for Titanic books. Well, it's nice to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Very, I, very I, kind I, words. Thank you. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that... Um, with our book, it's been out now for a um, little over 10 years. Um, and in recent years, it seems to have gotten a lot more interest than it did initially, just based on some uh, projects that we've worked on, um, including the anniversary live streams with Tom Linsky and HFX Studios. Um, so so I, I'm not surprised. I said that was one of the, the things we were a little um, not not super thrilled with at the beginning was the, the availability of it. And that over time, obviously, has changed and, and been been better so um we're happy to hear that it's cropped up now and that you're, you're interested in, in hearing more about it you said that the book's been out now for about 10 years and i know this is kind of a silly question because there's not really a beginning or an end process to it but how long did this book take you guys to write a lifetime <laughs> <laughs> see, see there's no definitive think- answer yeah, yeah I, I think that's probably the best way to put it because um, Tad and Bill and myself, we had all been working independently of each other for a long time, uh, doing a lot of our own research on on the ship and its history. And uh, eventually we we formed part of a, a larger team. And I know they were working on a book called um, uh, The Loss of the SS report into the loss of the SS Titanic, a centennial reappraisal. And um, the team leader on that project was uh, Sam Halpern. And they asked me to do an introduction. um, And I was behind the scenes kind of working with the team. Um, And so as we were kind of coming down the home stretch on that, Tad and Bill and I, uh, we had a conversation and we decided let's do a project that's a complete history of the ship, a narrative history that tackles some of the uh, some of the controversies in, in some side boxes and appendices and whatnot. And let's take all this research that we've been doing for other things that maybe doesn't read, you know, straight through like a history of the Titanic. And let's let's distill that down into our own project. Um, so I, I'm not sure if there was a a starting point <laughs> per se right. for the book. Um, but it, it was the culmination of many, many years of, of work both together and independently, I think. What, isn't that how you'd characterize it, Ted? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that uh, we really wanted to do with this was not to take what was published in previous books and assume that it was accurate and factual um, and that everything was correct with that. So we, we really tried to take it down to the bare bones, back to the eyewitness accounts, and the forensic evidence and all those things and, and not really assume that everything that had been written prior was, was correct. Cause uh, there's a lot of fantastic books on this subject. Um, there's also a lot of really, really bad ones. I, I'd even venture to say there's <laughs> about three quarters of them are not good. And then there's a, a quarter that are phenomenal. Um, and that a lot of those ones, the reason they're not good is because they've taken information um, whole scale and basically copied it over to um their book and they including the errors and things that were assumed to be true. And then you, you go back and look at the firsthand accounts and it's like, 
that's not even what the person ever really said. That was kind of an author putting words in the mouth or misinterpreting and, and things like that. <laughs> the good news is for the Very next much. hour, we are going to be carefully naming and shaming every single one of those books. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. So that, that's one of the downsides with that is that we, we're very careful because we, we don't pretend to know everything. Um, sure. And even since the first edition of our book came out, we've made every time that a new version comes out, we've made changes based on uh, mistakes or things that we've learned or just where the understanding has changed. So uh, we try to be very self-conscious about that is that you never really know 100% of everything that happened mm-hmm. um, and try to be somewhat humble about that because uh, the second you start thinking, Hey, I know everything, then you get proven wrong. And that's, that's the, the, the truth of history. I mean, it's constantly evolving based on what we find out. Yeah. And I, I've brought it up before, but I'm sure, you know, being historians, you're, you guys are aware as well is that there is, when you're doing research, there's a subjective nature to the discourse mm-hmm. of history. And, you know, it's important, it's important that you guys were saying that you went back to like the original eyewitness and forensic accounts because, First of all, as we're now learning, eyewitness accounts are, are faulty and false. People, whether they know it or not, have biases and reasons to lie. But also over time, recounting history, even if you do your very damnedest to tell your great-grandmother's story as faithfully as you can, or your great-aunt or whomever, it's impossible to ever recount something with 100% accuracy. And I think that's one of the th- one of the things that we've uh, learned a lot about Um uh, first of all, Titanic is its a, a set moment in time, and it's becoming more and more difficult for people today to take Titanic on its own terms for what it was in 1908, 1909, you know, 10, 11, 12. Um, the thinking processes of people, the societal norms were very different, and there's a, a, a lot of people that bring modern thoughts, processes, and, and, and ways of doing things. And it really becomes an unfair comparison. Um, when you, when you bring that modern way of thinking into it, you have to look at Titanic as they looked at it, you know, back then in order to really understand it for what it was. Um, the other thing that we found, which is very interesting to us is, um, we've, we've looked at a lot of survivor accounts, over the years. And I don't know if, if this goes for Tad as well, but I, I find personally uh, there is a, a rush to throw accounts, firsthand accounts out the window. Um, Yeah. yeah, Because uh, many people will say firsthand accounts are unreliable. Um, People, people lied, people did this, people misremembered, but time and again, when we go back, to those original accounts and we take them on their own terms and we let the people that were speaking talk and listen to what they have to say. And then you account for perspective uh, because you have to keep in mind that each individual only had a, a small swath that they were experiencing at the larger picture. Um, it really is amazing how good these survivor accounts really are. We know that there are some who lied, um, some who stretched the truth. Uh, even Lightoller later admitted that when he was at the inquiries, um, there was a, a heavy hand on the whitewash brush. But I think he was the most flagrant example that I can think of. Um, For intentional and, reasons, I think. Yeah, yeah. For most of the other people, um, they told their story as as best they could, very few of them lied um, deliberately. Some exaggerated their role. Um, others just didn't understand exactly what was happening in the larger context. But even then, their accounts are useful because when you start taking an aggregate of material and, and putting it together, it becomes obvious where the, the facts lie. Um, and without all of those accounts and each of those pieces of the puzzle – we wouldn't be able to get to the bottom of things the way we have over the years. And and I've noticed a trend too, where people want to emphasize and for, for good reasons, um, firsthand testimony taken in the disaster inquiries or under oath in the limitation of liability hearings, um, 
after after the the sinking uh, because those are taken in court. So obviously there's a good chance those are accurate and represent fully what the witnesses say. Uh, but there's a, a tendency for people to throw out entirely um, press accounts, which if you look at what um, survivors were saying in 1912, they, the easiest example are the ships, um, the breakup of it, where at the disaster inquiries, more people said that the ship broke up than didn't, but because the officer said it's, it's sunk intact, that became gospel. And you look in the newspapers, there's hundred, literally hundreds of uh, witnesses that said the ship broke in half. Um, they're from press accounts. Now, some of those are more accurately transcribed than others, but if people had paid attention to that 100 years ago, they would have known before the wreck was discovered that, yes, it did break in half, but yet people tend to, to for different reasons and different agendas, to throw out what doesn't fit their own theories or ideas. That was actually the example, excuse me, that was actually the example that I was referring to was the breaking of the ship, which, you know, obviously in the grand scheme of things, both does and does not matter. It, it doesn't change how many people passed away and how many people survived. But at the end of the day, it's a massive part of the story. And, you know, I think now, as you guys were mentioning with the context, you can understand why, you know, Lytle and the officer said what they said. There, there was pressure from their bosses to be like, don't, don't say this thing. It's already, it's already bad enough for us as it is. Just, just be quiet. And you, I, you know, we don't, sorry. And sometimes we don't even know where, what their motivation was. Um, The, the idea that there was pressure from management or things like that. I've never seen any, any evidence of that in the historical record. I think in some cases, specifically Lightoller, he was very much a company man who wanted to make sure that the story he told did – it painted both the people that he had served with on the ship and his company uh, in the best light possible. I don't think um, – I don't think there was anything going through his mind of a conspiratorial nature, you know um, – you know, got to cover the company or I'm going to get fired or anything like that. I think it was just he genuinely wanted to – to paint the rosiest picture that he could um, of, of, of all the decisions. Even then you can kind of tell where he was, um, where he was kind of fudging things a little bit. Um, there, there's definitely moments where what he says, you can see he's walking right up to the line, especially with the breakup. Um, and it, what's funny is we actually not too long ago stumbled across an account of a person who had heard Lightoller in the water uh, at shouting for people to swim toward the stern, that the stern was going to float. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was, it, it's very interesting, but by looking at the larger picture, you can begin to identify where the, the outright falsehoods or stretching of the truth really are. And you can still uh, get a grasp of, of the larger truth. And I have to say, by and large, most of the people who survived um, or testified or who gave accounts who were involved with the ship, we haven't found reason to suspect most of those people of, of gross exaggerations or, or outright falsehoods. The, the one thing that I've noticed, and I think Kent would concur with me on this, is that uh, as opposed to lying or falsehoods, there, it, there seem to be, if you read the transcripts from the disaster inquiries, where they would, would not volunteer information. They were only... Um, stating things if they were directly asked about it. Um, good example of that the quartermaster who Hitchens, who was at the ship's wheel when the iceberg was struck, there was a second helm order, the hard to starboard to try to avoid, and then a hard to port to swing the stern out of the way. He never mentioned the second order in his testimony, but he did to a, a passenger on the Carpathia in a random interview. Um, and, and I really think we can't prove this 100%, but at legal proceedings, they probably told them don't. Um, elaborate or go out on a limb with your answers, just stick to what they ask you directly. And that's, that's to protect themselves and the, obviously their liabilities, I'm sure after the fact, but um, it's interesting that you see some, not necessarily evasiveness, but they just, they lack of being willing to volunteer information unless somebody flat out asked them about it. <laughs> yeah. I think you even see that now, which, you know, we're looking at this from historical context of like, why didn't they just tell the truth? Darn it. But you know, I- 
so I was following the um, the January 6th insurrection hearings here in the United States for um, their duration. And in sort of a similar vein, you, you notice that a lot of people are answering very specific questions. Um, and if perhaps one of the three of us were asked that que- a question, we would just explain the whole story because we understood the question to be like, yeah, I'm asking you a specific question, but I want a general answer. But I think it's interesting to remember that when people go into court and when they have lawyers and stuff, they're not, they're instructed to say basically as little as possible. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's actually one of the reasons why what Tad was saying earlier about it's actually good to look beyond inquiry testimony. Uh, The inquiries were, were very useful. They were structured conversations, but they have their faults. Uh, some, sometimes it, it could be the people that were conducting the inquiry because they were not um, your, your trained seamen. So, you know, they didn't know nautical terminology or how ships worked. Um, and so they could get confused. Uh, sometimes it was because, as you say, legalese, uh, a witness is not going to just offer up extra information, you know, beyond what, what they're being asked. Um, Sometimes it's frustrating because just when uh, when an eyewitness is getting to something where you know it's going to answer a question you have, the, the subject of the conversation changes, um, and it, you're just sitting there and you're like, "Oh no, I <laughs> I wish I'd just let them talk for another thirty seconds." Um, but more and more, when you get good firsthand accounts, uh, either letters or um, accounts that were good accounts that were given to the press. And there were a lot of those. We know that some were made up or exaggerated, but there were a lot of good accounts. Uh, so often they would just talk a little bit more and no one was cutting them off. Um, and so sometimes uh, details emerge in those accounts that are actually extremely helpful to clearing up questions we have from the inquiries. Something that we've really tried to combat, uh, both with Odyssey of Glass and then our most recent book, Recreating Titanic and Her Sisters, is some of these crazy conspiracy theories that you see in the paper. Like, There's been a lot of press given to the um, coal fire and its role in the sinking, which is really extremely overplayed and, and wasn't something that was unknown in 1912. They talked about it openly, and there's been a lot of um, press given to that, and we had to write a whole piece debunking that based on the original evidence. And then um, most recently, there's been a disturbing trend to keep bringing up um, allegations of poor construction, uh, that they were skimping on the budget, skimping on this, uh, things that are completely and 100% unsupported. Uh, but yet you see that's something that the media grabs onto because it's, it's dramatic. It sounds, uh, oh, this is crazy. Did this really happen? And it, get, it gets a lot of attention and headlines, but... Um, it, it really does frustrate historians because then you have to go back and spend a bunch of time refuting something that there's really nothing to support. But those sound bites are, are very popular and, and unfortunately get a lot more play than the more mundane conversations about history that, that are um, not as exciting to listen to. <laughs> and to, to second what Dad said, they're, they're not as exciting. So yeah. once the sound bites are out there, once the press stories are out there, and it's been in the media and it's set, you know, the world abuzz like the, the coal fire theory did a few years ago. It is very difficult um, to get the media to correct the stories uh, because quite simply, they're not as fun. They're not as exciting and they wouldn't sell as many copies. It reminds me of how everything, uh, the coverage around the hot coffee lawsuit with McDonald's was handled um, and that even still today, there's people who think that that was a frivolous lawsuit. But, you know, when you go back to the source documents, it's like it wasn't just a lady who was like, this coffee is hot. How dare you? You know, it was excessively hot on an elderly woman and it caused second degree burns in her lap when she just wanted them mm-hmm. to cover her medical costs. But then, as you say, you get this sound bite: Woman sues McDonald's because coffee is too hot. Jen, have you ever heard of someone complaining that their coffee was too hot? And, you know, then we're off to the races. We're, we're gone. Right. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. That's a, a good example of that. But um, what is what is frustrating for us is if you go back, there's just people need to use common sense. If you look at, uh, obviously, Titanic was one of three uh, sister ships that were built. And uh, it's the oldest sister, the RMS Olympic, served into the 1930s, was built 
Um, largely the same design, same materials, built by a lot of the same hands at Harland and Wolf. Um, survived World War One, uh, extremely rough weather, storms, uh, ramming a U-boat, uh, dud torpedo hitting it during World War One. all these things, and never had any structural failures at all. Um, and people look at Titanic because it broke apart when it sank, and they're like, oh, was it constructed poorly? It's like, no, I mean, clearly not when you have another ship of the same exact design that was subjected to pretty stressful conditions and held up way better than a lot of its contemporaries did, even when you compare directly to some of the other shipping lines. So um, that's not as exciting to say. Yes, it's a well-built ship is saying, hey, there was a raging coal fire and and then it hit an iceberg and blew up and, and sank. I mean, that, that's not, it's not as exciting to say it that way, you know? Yeah. No, you're right. It would be like if you had a set of twins and one of them was a classical pianist and the other was into bmx biking you know Mm -hmm. if they both start at six years old and you evaluate them at 18 you might see a lot of arthritis and tendonitis in the pianist but you might see a lot of dislocations and surgical repairs and breaks on the bmx biker and it's like even if both of them worked equally as hard at their craft i think it's slightly easier to get injured doing a bmx course than it is playing a bach sonata just a personal Mm -hmm. opinion but, you know, it, I wouldn't say that either of these twins is defective. It's just that one of them really went through the ringer. Right, right. And, that, that, that's, and that, that's right, because you look at Titanic, it was just subjected to forces way beyond what it was ever designed for. And that's why it, it broke apart and sank. It wasn't going to break apart in routine or even outside the range of routine usage. That was something that it was never envisioned or never should have been envisioned in a routine design. Right. Um, and and I, I think the other thing you see, which like, I don't know the right term to call it. And I hope this doesn't come off as offensive to anyone is like derangement syndrome over mundane issues in history. Like we have a, a good friend and fellow researcher, uh, Mark Churnside, uh, where he, um, he, he's found a ton of documentation over the years um, regarding the center propeller on Titanic having three blades instead of four. And now, most people that aren't really into history will look at that and say, who cares? I mean, I that doesn't matter. Um, ocean liner historians, are, it's a important detail just about the design. Uh, but he has like proof. There is absolutely no documentary proof from 1912 or any era that shows that there was a four bladed propeller, but there's a lot of pictures of um, the sister ship Olympic that show four blades and people have mislabeled it as Titanic. So people refuse to believe that it was three bladed. It's like, some offensive thing to them, which is, it's kind of funny considering that's not a super dramatic detail. It's pretty, pretty mundane. A lot of people don't care about that. Um, but these people lose their minds because it's a story that they're, they're just so used to have it ingrained in their brain. You know, it had four center blades and somebody says three and the abuse that, that Mark has taken online, like is so disproportionate um, for something that, that the level of what that is, it's a design detail that doesn't interest most people. And he really has gotten some over the top reactions from it, which is um, ridiculous to me. I don't, it, it doesn't make any sense at all, but it's yeah. just based people cling to what they think they know or don't know. Um, yeah. And just react to it. Obviously online is not a good thing for everybody. That's um, ridiculous. Social media, some and not others. <laughs> yeah. And that's an extreme example, but we find there is a very um, emotional attachment to what you think you know when it comes to Titanic uh, and her sisters. Um, For years and years and years, people, uh, they had seen in all the movies, and they probably had a very emotional reaction to the story about Thomas Andrews being in the smoking room as Titanic was sinking. Um, You know, but just because you see it in every movie doesn't mean that it is actually what happened. Fantastic Um, untruth in that way. But it does make for, admittedly, it makes for a great shot. So there's, I can see why it was changed narratively. It's it's a beautiful shot. But I'm sure, you know, Kent's about to enlighten us as to what actually happened. It may not have been quite as poignant in in film. Yeah, I mean, there there was actually an account placing him in the smoking room, um, you know, with his life belt draped draped over the the chair nearby. Um, But that was just one account. Mm-hmm. And we know it had to have happened before a certain point because of who that account came from. And the source where it originally showed up uh, was uh, in a book by Shan Bullock about the life of Thomas Andrews. And 
Even Shan Bullock, the author who was compiling these accounts, concluded that Andrews had gone elsewhere after that point. Um, he was reportedly seen throwing deck chairs in into the water uh, to help people who were swimming. And he was seen heading forward um, toward the vicinity of the bridge. And when we were researching on a sea of glass, um, we found uh, there was uh, an account by a friend of Lord Peary, who was Andrew's uncle. And he written a letter to Lord Peary. He'd come back from America to Europe on a ship called the Lapland, which happened to be carrying many of the survivors of the Titanic disaster. And he had actually spent a lot of time during that crossing interviewing people to try to find out what had happened to Andrews. Mm-hmm. And Andrews is very well known. What was that, Ted? Sorry, Ken, I didn't mean to interrupt. I said specifically crew members who knew oh. Andrews and knew who he was. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, he was very well known among the crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it um, seems like he was pretty well known among basically anybody who worked there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was, he was a well-known figure and, and this individual named Galloway had actually uh, found a young mess steward uh, who had survived, who said that he had seen Andrews and Captain Smith together on the bridge at the very end. Uh, and that he'd overheard Captain Smith telling Andrews, it's no use. Uh, we can't wait any longer. She's going. And that they had jumped over the rail together. Uh, when we found that account, it was just this little tidbit. Um, when we were putting on a sea of glass together, it was a thread and we kind of started to pull on the thread because it was because it was so different from even what we had believed based on everything that we had read and seen in the movies and seen in the documentaries over the years. And we started to pull on that thread and we were surprised uh, by what we found as we as we continued to, to pull at it. Um, we found two press accounts of interviews that were given with the only young surviving mess steward. Uh, he, he was named Fitzpatrick. Um, one of the press accounts is commonly available, and it's usually the one that people will use when they don't like what we found, and they're trying to say, well, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't, what he's, what Fitzpatrick said doesn't really say what you're saying it says, because they like the other way. Um, but the second press account, he was very clear, he offered some extra information, some extra detail, um, and it, it was very, suddenly it struck us that the one account of Andrews in the smoking room at the end did not match the, the number of accounts that we had of Andrews being on the bridge at the end. And it harmonized very well. I know Tad had done a lot of research on where Captain Smith had last been seen. And um, he'd last been seen on the bridge, basically, in that, in that area. Uh, many people had even reported seeing him jump, jump overboard into the water. Um, so... Suddenly, we had this complete revision of popular history, uh, and it and it harmonized very well with the other facts that we had available. And that's one that we've gotten a little bit of pushback because people, again, you look at A Night to Remember, James Cameron's movie, um, they all have that scene with Andrews in the smoking room. And, and as we said, that's, that's based on an actual account. So um, it's certainly justifiable that they did show it that way, and this information was came out after after that. Um, but it's very dramatic. And like, even this, I think if it was filmed correctly, you could have a scene that was equally as poignant, just in a different way, but that's new information and that's history. You, we look at back from our book 10 years ago and there's things that we need to change already that we found more information about. So that's, that's like, if you're being honest, uh, any author or historian, you're going to make changes over time based on that. Otherwise it's not, not being honest. That's a fair point. Um, just, I just remembered, Todd, that not, I don't normally have pre-prepared questions or anything, but I remember that you mentioned in our chat beforehand that you had a couple of things you wanted to bring up. Before I forget, what are those, and that, have I already covered some of them? <laughs> so, some of it we have, yes. We've, okay. we've gotten through some. Um, I want to make I, sure I we get everything. The, <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I think one of the things, um, again, like I said, just people that are listening that, that are really – passionate and interested in this subject, just not necessarily believing anything that they see in a headline or in any one book. But uh, if they're really interested, just being willing to do their own research and dig into it. And we have a lot of people that will 
automatically be on one of the Facebook groups or message boards and have a question, you, you give them the answer and it isn't what they want and they refuse to listen to it. And uh, it's not that we know everything and they don't, but like, it's, it's like they've been, they've seen something online, they've seen a headline and they say, well, the, the ship sank because the, the steel was bad. Well, that's not really why it sank, but you can't convince them of otherwise because they saw it somewhere. And I think that's just the natural inclination of a lot of people nowadays is that they don't look beyond um, what they've seen briefly and, and everybody wants to be an expert. And certainly there's things we know um, quite a bit about with the sinking, but there's things that, that people know different areas of the disaster better than us. Like maybe the technical aspects or certain things like there's, there's people that uh, I can think of like Bill Sauter, who is an expert on the technical aspects of the ship and the artifacts and, and things of that sort where certainly um, we're not in this, we don't have the same level of knowledge as he does. Cause he's had firsthand experience with not just the research, but handling what they've raised from the ship and, and being on expeditions and things of that sort. So I think it's all about um, being open to other ideas and, and consulting people that know maybe more in a different area than we do. Um, and then pulling all that information together. That's how, how you get to the real truth of what happens um, from a historical perspective. Sorry, I got the hiccup, so I put myself on mute for a second. But I have a, a, <laughs> a question, and if this doesn't make sense, I'll try to rephrase it. But do you guys have, because I know you mentioned you have a book, um, honestly, if last we were talking about, you have the more recent book, but from that point, do you guys have any like Titanic-related goals that you want to achieve, even if they seem really lofty? Just something that you're like, wow, it would be really cool to be able to insert insert goal here. Um, I Ken, I'll go first. I know you have some things that you want to talk about with this, but um, just in general, what really frustrates me is that you have some people that, um, for whatever reason, have a, a, a large quantity of information that has not been published, um, that they've accrued over time, and that they just are unwilling to work with other researchers, or or they've lost interest and are just kind of sitting on it. Um, what we've really tried to do in our, our work and our approach is to include as many different disciplines and as many different sources of information and also be generous and sharing with others when people need help or need have some, we have something that they don't have and they want to look at that uh, consulting with others, just being willing to share and work as a team as opposed to different factions. And I think that's true in anywhere in history, like whatever subject you're looking at, this is the case, but I just wish that there'd be, if people pulled the information together, you get closer to the truth. If you're willing to share that and work, cooperatively and i see too many people where it's a competition or they just don't really know what they want to do with it sometimes you have like expeditions information where it's protected by non-disclosure agreements that's a whole other thing which you can't really remedy but um i just wish that spirit of cooperation and sharing um to really get to the truth on things would be something that i like to to try to do and um i know kent and and bill will wormstead has worked with an dozens of people over the years um, and cooperatively and help them with projects, even if it's just proofreading or, or lending an eye, um, sharing accounts, that sort of thing. And our friend, George Behe, uh, same thing. He's worked with Dan Parks and others like over the years and, and shared information with anybody pretty much that's asked. So um, I think it's important and something that I strive towards and would like to see more of. Yeah, I, I very much agree with what Tad said. Um, there's, there's a lot of room for ego when it comes to Titanic. Um, people like to try to get their name in the spotlight. And there's a lot of room for, um, unfortunately, money gets involved a lot of times. Um, whether it's uh, the money that goes into an expedition uh, and then everyone has to sign NDAs so that the information can't be shared and then they sit on the information. Uh, I can see protecting your investment from a monetary standpoint, but unfortunately, what tends to happen is that they will sit on the information and then they will put a bad documentary or bad program, as I call them. I, a lot of these recent quote-unquote documentaries I won't even refer to as such anymore because more and more they're becoming media hype rather than um, solid facts. Um, and to an extent, I can understand it because a lot of producers – don't know the facts. They can't take time to study the facts. And so when someone comes to them with a 
an exciting sounding premise, they have knowledge of the industry and how to market and how to sell programs. And they say, Titanic makes money. This sounds new. This sounds fresh. I know we can keep viewers past the next commercial break with this premise. Let's slap this together and, and we'll have a new, a new program. Um, I, it's becoming extraordinarily rare these days for a, a mass market program to actually have quality content. Uh, and I think that's what I'm finding is most frustrating uh, because people will watch these. Uh, some of them are very entertaining programs. Uh, I remember there was one a number of years ago that focused on the engineering crew uh, and what was going on below decks uh, while the Titanic was sinking. And I, I remember I was sitting there and I'm like, this is such a fresh take. This could really, you know, this is exciting. But as I was watching it, I was saying, I, I know what these people said that they're portraying on the TV and what I'm seeing them doing is not what they said they were doing or what was happening. Uh, it was uh, Titanic is unfortunately it's leaving the realm of history in many cases, and it's descending into mythology and it's, it's be fast becoming make it what you want to make it and what you can sell. Uh, so I think one of my dream projects would be to head up um, to, to be involved in, heavily involved in a, a large-scale Titanic documentary that would actually tell the facts and not get wrapped up in coal fires and brittle steel and all the other things that we've been hearing. Uh, the Mount Temple uh, purposely abandoning the Titanic, <laughs> uh, thing, things of that nature um, that sell so well, but really are not based in fact. That, that's a, a good point. I'd just like to second that. I mean, if anybody was willing to produce a high-end documentary based on fact, I, that would be something that would be um, really a goal to work on rather than something that, that just gets headlines. And you look at History Channel now as a good example, not to single out any network or TV, but there's so many reality-based shows which uh, have that there's a market for that. They're entertaining uh, if you like that kind of thing, and it's if there's nothing wrong with it, but you don't see the serious document documentaries on there anymore. You see about ancient aliens and Bigfoot and um, Oak Island and everything. And, and, there, and that's fine. There's a market for that. And I'm not making fun of anybody that likes that by any means, but you don't see like the serious um, hardcore documentaries anymore on stations like that. It's just not what they're, they're interested in producing. If your idea that's of a actually good time is watching, sorry, I, before, before we go back to serious conversation, if your idea of a good time is watching storage wars, I will fight you. Um, I will not win, but I just need to put that out there because like, uh, you're right. There, there are, there is a market for everything. And I don't want to denigrate and be like, you can't watch this. It's garbage because I unironically love the two thousands reality show that, um, poison front meant Brett Michaels was in the dating reality competition <laughs> show rock of love. I think that is one of the best reality shows that has ever been made, but I wouldn't qualify that as educational. You can learn a lot about maybe what not to do, but, you know, I, I wouldn't go there on a fact-finding mission, and you're right, there is the market for that, but I think that maybe what a lot of networks or just people in general underestimate about the viewing public is that there is an exceptionally large market for people who do just want to know, hey, uh, what actually happened with this big event? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that would be that would be a dream type project for me. Um, I know that uh, a lot of producers out there, because they don't know what's going on, uh, they'll either get a conspiracy theorist and a genuine historian, and they'll take in the information and they'll compare them side by side, and they don't have anything. They don't have a standard in their minds, perhaps of, of years of research on the Titanic to go to go to, mm -hmm. and so. They have one person telling them one thing. They have another person them telling another. What are they going to believe? So they decide to to push it toward, you know, and even sometimes I've been in the situation where I've told producers, I've been like, um, you know, that's wrong. <laughs> and I can I can tell you in 100 pages why that's wrong, but they, they don't necessarily always want to listen because it's not, it's not going to sell. 
This is one of the reasons why Tad and Bell and I have been working so closely with Tom Linsky of HFX Studios over the past couple of years is because Tom, he loves the history. And he also has a really good way of telling the history in an engaging way. And so when we've worked with him, it was on the proviso and it, it took no convincing, uh, if, if anybody had that question, is let the historians tell the story. Um, and Tom, Tom sits back and he, he basically smiles and says, okay, um, what do we do? Well, what happened? And that's, that's why it's such a joy to work with him because uh, we, we've done the legwork, we know the story, and then he's able to, to take that information and turn it into something that's educational and which conveys the events that these poor people went through in, in a way that's as, as close as possible uh, to getting it right as we can get. And, I, and I, I agree with Ken on that. I know, I don't know if this is the format to endorse or mention anything, but like people that are interested in serious uh, historical documentaries that um, are produced at a very high level, they're, they're amateurs doing it, but at a very high level and it's, it's very professionally done would be obviously Tom with HFX studio. So on part-time historian or part-time explorer, I'm sorry, on YouTube, um, is very worth it. He has a number of documentaries on all range of topics, not just Titanic, but, uh, so part-time explorer. And then our friend, Michael Brady with ocean liner designs, he has a number of fascinating, um, little documentaries he's put out there. So if people are listening to your podcast, have an interest in this subject or just, um, maritime ocean liner history in general, those would be a good place to kind of click on and watch some of those because there's some, um, some good content that really a lot of people watch, but a lot of people are unaware of. So, I feel it's like a put a little plug out there for them because it is something that's a very serious and well done um, material. Thank you. I just Googled both of them and added them both to my people. I would like to have on this show list. Um, I want to th- say though, it's important. And you mentioned it really quickly is that just because it's quote unquote done by an amateur does not mean that it's not quality. You know, there's, mm-hmm. I've, I've noticed this too, especially in, I don't, I don't really use TikTok. I talk about it a lot on the show, but the few times that I've, you know, looked over someone's shoulder, which you're not really supposed to do, but I'm nosy. I've seen a lot of, you know, a lot of the content that I see is very glossy is the word that I'm going to use. It looks, and this is by everyone. This isn't just by, you know, oh, once every 10 people. So almost everyone that's coming by on these pages, they have, lighting and they have a setup and they have the the women are wearing makeup they're wearing nice clothes it's very very put together and these are not you know professional filmmakers or models these are just people who have put in the effort to creating something and you don't have to be you know james cameron with your hundreds of millions to make something that's worth watching and you, you know you don't have to be a big name to create something that's worth reading yeah you're right about that um What's funny is is these two channels that we mentioned, um, you know, with Tom and and with Michael, um, there's a lot of quality content on there. But what's interesting is from a from a layman's perspective, there's a lot of content on YouTube and a lot of it not not again, not to pick on any particular network or resource. A lot of it's not good. (laughs) A lot of it is poorly researched, um, is filled with errors and inaccuracies. But uh, again, we try to work with people who, who care about the history and about getting it right and not just repeating what they've been told or what will sell. Uh, and that's why we work with specific people uh, and, and try to get good information out there in an appealing way. And one of the things that we really try to do, um, and I would recommend this for anybody that's a writer or historian, is that you have that group of friends that you trust, not not just to look at unpublished works of yours beforehand to give you their thoughts, but to be to give you their critical thoughts on it, uh, to play devil's advocate, to, to poke any holes in it that they can see from a historical perspective, to call out things they said where, hey, I think you're reaching and this isn't warranted based on what the witnesses said. So we have a group that we do this with our projects all the time, uh, and, and it really does make the product more accurate and better in the back end, but you got to be willing to tell, get a group of people that you know aren't going to tell you just what you want to hear and that they're willing to, to say something critical um, when, the, when it's warranted. Yeah. We find a lot of people when they're doing research, what they do is they come in with a, a preconceived notion. It had, you know, this is what I think happened. 
And then they'll go through the historical record and they will, they'll skim through it and they'll just find what they want to find that they think, you know, will support their idea. And then they'll ignore the rest. They won't search any deeper. And then they'll say, okay, this is, this is what I found that supports my theory. This is the way it had to be. Um, even if the, the five little things they found is countered by 25 other things uh, in the historical record, it, it, they, they cherry pick their evidence sometimes. Uh, and that's an unfortunate, um, unfortunate thing. But when you're working with a team of people who will critically look at your, um, at your work in advance of release, especially, uh, and especially if they have uh, a variety of different specialties, you know, maybe one's a technical expert, one is a, an expert on passengers and crew, one, you know, and, and they all look at it together and they say, okay, well, you missed this or you missed this or I like this. This is why that works. This is why that doesn't work. If you let it, Titanic, a, a good study of Titanic will keep you humble uh, by having that input from people that you've come to trust and work with and who are as interested in the fact as you are. Uh, whereas a lot of people who work on it on their own, it's all about ego uh, to them. Uh, they, they We call them lone wolves where they, they split off with their own ideas. They cherry pick their evidence and then they, they package that up as, as being the reality when unfortunately in many cases they've, they've gotten it wrong. And you look at some of the great, what universally loved um, researchers, artists and things like that. That's, that's something you'll see with them as well. Um, like Ken Marshall, the the artist and visual historian, like he he is extremely um, willing to change his mind on things. Like you've seen in his own work over the years, as he's found more about the physical appearance of the ship. Which that's one of the things that fascinates me is like a little over a hundred years, and there's tons of things we don't even know about the physical appearance of Titanic, like interior decoration, small features, things that they're constantly finding that look different than we thought they did, and that's from something that recent in history. But he's he's um you look at his work has changed things based on what he's found over time and has been very, very willing to share with other individuals. Um, obviously George B. He was a phenomenal researcher shares with just about anybody that's willing to listen and, and, and um, conduct actual research. I mean, Don Lynch, the same thing. He's when well, no, I see a glass came out. Um, I think it was like the second edition, Kent, mm-hmm. was it, that he, um, kind of gave some feedback on some things that he had noticed and we incorporated it into future changes based on, on that. So that, that's something you, a lot of these universally respected individuals just that they're willing to, to revise their own thoughts and then also to share with others. And um, I think that's the a quality that what you need to look for to, and that's how you can tell somebody's really serious about it. Yeah. When it comes to Titanic, you have to know when to stick to your guns and when to say, um, okay, I see the avalanche of evidence and I was wrong. Um, there, there's times when, when people will come at you with their own idea and it can sound convincing, but you know there's overwhelming evidence to the contrary. That's when you have to stick to your guns, uh, whether it's um, you know the, the coal theory or brittle steel or um, you know J.P. Morgan was behind the, the finance and new construction of the ships and he had them do it on the cheap uh, or Olympic and Titanic were switched, um, or even even details like um, the the order of the lifeboats uh, and how they were lowered and, and various details regarding that. You have to know when to say, okay, here's the the majority of the evidence here, and there's a few outliers over here, but this is what we're going to go with. We're going to go with the majority as opposed to this you know this little tiny uh, selection of, of evidence over here. Um, but at the same time, you have to be willing to revise your findings because, yeah. let's face it, you find new information, you find new accounts, you find new forensic evidence at the rec site that's been released, and you have to be willing to say, hmm, you know, this kind of uh, – it, 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 it augments or would force a, a revision in this area of our research. And that's, that's what Tad and Bill and I have always tried to do is we've always tried to take – uh, good, solid information that's presented to us and augment our findings, revise our, our finished conclusions, revise our work to reflect the latest uh, research and understanding. 
it, it, and it's fascinating. Like you mentioned about the rec site and things that you can learn from that. Like we've done, um, Kent, Kent has been involved in this over the years as well, but um, Bill Wormstead, George B, he and I worked for well over 20 years on the, the lifeboat timeline and the timeline of when they were lowered and launched and have a extensive article that we're constantly over time remending based on new findings. And we, we always knew that the Titanic after it hit the iceberg listed to starboard, which makes sense. It's the side where the water was coming in initially and then leveled out and started to list over to the port side later, which is the opposite side of the damage because the that's, that was noted in, in a lot of accounts and it's based on the passages below deck, like Scotland road and the compartments and how the flooding proceeded. Um, we, at one point in time, probably we're putting a little bit too much emphasis on the list. And I know some other people, I would think we're doing the same. Like if it listed a port when they were at this boat, then that means the boat was um, lowered at this point in time. And we kind of uh, tried to place it in the timeline based on that. Well, lo and behold, in the, the rec site with these images that, that have been around, some for a long time, some that are now being brought back up well, more prominently based on things people that have been noticed, um, the lifeboat davits were not all... Um, cranked out to the same degree from the side of the ship. So when a survivor would say, hey, there's a two-foot gap or a three-foot gap between the side of the boat and the ship, how far that was um, cranked out would impact that, obviously. And, and so as opposed to being, oh, that's 100% because of the list of port or starboard, it, there's a factor that now we know from the wreck site and images that those davits were not all swung out fully, um, whether that's intentional by the crew or by lack of familiarity where there's a, a number of reasons you can look at that, but we have forensic evidence from the wreck that says, Hey, they, they weren't all fully cranked out to the um, number of degrees they can go. And that, that would have impacted what survivors saw. And then obviously has great implications for where that's placed in the timeline. So um, that's something that nobody's really uh, mentioned until recently. And we've been uh, kind of dove into that, but it shows that conventional wisdom doesn't always stand up to the test of what, um, what forensics or accounts will show uh, as, as new information comes out. Uh, so that, that was something we just um, really started getting into the last couple of years and then and working on the last few weeks, uh, how that impacted things. Cool. What do you, you, I mean, you guys obviously work together um, a lot and have produced a lot together, but are you work? I mean, you just published a book. So, I mean, do you have anything that's currently coming together or are you guys working on something or are you kind of like no we deserve a break um, I, I don't oh, go ahead, go go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say um uh yeah we we do have projects that we're working on as a matter of fact even right now uh tad and i uh not with bill this time just because bill is not um uh, an expert in the lusitania mm-hmm. per se uh, but but Tad and I have been working with the team on a virtual museum experience uh, of the Lusitania disaster, uh, and this is this is actually a really exciting project um, because uh, Lusitania has been yeah uh, Lusitania is it, it's important to understand the Lusitania to give context to Olympic and Titanic, and um, so we've always had uh, an interest in that ship. Um, but now we're doing this, this virtual museum experience that includes a complete reconstruction of the ship in, in 3d that you'll be able to walk the decks of, you'll be able to see the public rooms, um, and you'll even be able to experience a, a real time sinking of, of what happened in those 18 minutes on May 7th. Um, and we've, we've got some other things that we're working on in conjunction with that, and I've seen some of the um, the demo uh, information for the for the museum experience, and I've been testing it. And I got to tell you, it is the most stunning thing to be able to walk through the ship and see these public rooms that I've only seen in black and white photos over the years uh, come to life in color, uh, the way they would have looked and, and appeared well over a hundred years ago. That's incredible. I want to walk around that. Yeah. That sounds amazing. So- yeah, well, hopefully you'll be able to. Uh, we should have some more news on that in the very near future. Um, so that's one of the things that we've been working on. And, of course, with Titanic, um, once it gets a hold of you, you can never leave it for too long. Um, so I know there's some other projects regarding the Titanic that we're going to be uh, tackling in the future. Um, 
some things that I've been involved in early discussions with that uh, I'm hoping to bring Tad in on very soon and hoping he has the time to, to be a part of. So um, it, we, we have a, we have an ongoing um, bullet list of things, one of which is we have a lot of revisions to Honesty of Glass uh, that we've been doing in the past couple of years, Tad, isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, since the last edition came out several years ago, we're, we're keeping a running list. And some things, like we gave this example in another um, discussion we had recently, but something that they show in every movie documentary that we had assumed to be true uh, was that the Titanic's band had come out on the port side of the ship near the grand staircase at the end and played on deck. And that's where they were when the ship sank. And of course they all lost their lives, uh, which is an incredible story in a lot of ways, but um, that's all true. Um, but we found from our, one of our friends, again, um, to bring up um, George Behe's name, like that every single survivor who um, mentioned seeing the band at the end where it was an account that appears credible and, and was written uh, whether in private accounts or just in a way where it doesn't seem exaggerated and the people were in the place where they in position to see what, what they said they saw, um, that all of them were on the starboard side of the ship at the end. So it appears that even though this doesn't impact the overall story of what the band did, they actually came out on deck on the opposite side uh, in a totally different location than everybody, including ourselves, had assumed over time. And um, so we're going to change that in a future edition. Again, that doesn't change the heroism of the band or what they did, but it's just something that we've every single person that's ever written about it has been wrong about until recently. I mean, so that's a small guys. example. A little things like that, that and we just want to make sure we keep our book up to date and as accurate as possible over time so that when somebody picks it up, it's not 10, 15 year old information that's yep. totally up to date and not as much use as it was when we first wrote it. Yep. And uh, in the last couple of years, uh, doing that real-time syncing animation of the Titanic disaster uh, with Tom Blinsky and Levi Rourke of HFX Studios. I have to tell you that as a research tool, uh, you know, people can go in and they can watch the real-time syncing event and they can enjoy it for that. But as a research tool, a lot of the work that we were doing behind the scenes to produce that uh, real-time syncing, this is a, a, a world, for lack of a better world, word that uh, Tad and Bill and I have kind of lived in uh, for, for many years. And in your mind's eye, uh, you know, as you're reading different accounts, you're able to put these pieces together and you have like a visual based on what you're reading of what's going on. But one of the things we discovered is that when you're able to see all of the different elements and how they fit together. Uh, so for example, you have, what's happening on the starboard side versus what's happening on the port side with the ship listed over to port. I remember um, when we were coming close to the, the work on the final plunge, when the, when the bridge went under and the forward end of the boat decks went under for the first time ever, the three of us were able to see, Oh, wow. Okay. With the ship listed over this way, that meant that this collapsible here, when it, hit the boat deck was in the water. That meant it was high and dry on this side. So it, it, it helped to, to get a, a clearer picture, like an order of operation um, to kind of work on the text of on a sea of glass at the very end there of which order things must've played out in, in those, just those couple of minutes. That's just one example. Uh, another thing that we found was a lot of the distance estimates that people who were in the lifeboats gave, they would say, you know, uh, we were 500 yards away from the ship. We were 800 yards away from the ship. It's, and it's well and good enough to read it. But when you know when the lifeboats were launched and then you try to get them to that distance out in the animation before the ship actually sinks, what you tend to find is that many of those lifeboats would have needed a power motor to get out to that point in the water in that amount of time. And so we, we're looking at this and we're, we're saying to ourselves, you know, we've known all along that distance estimates at night are very perceptive. And we've known that even within the same lifeboat, sometimes you get people, you know, one would say 200 yards, another would say 500 yards. doesn't sound like a big difference, but it really is. And we began to, to realize, 
there's another element that we never considered is how quickly could the boat get from point A to point B? You know, what's realistic? What's a, what's a good calculation? Uh, and because of that, we were forced to revise our our perceptions of of how close those lifeboats were, uh, just being able to see those elements interact with each other for the first time. And I, I think there's a, a good utility for um, virtual recreations um, in the study of history, whether it's Titanic or Lusitania. Um, and I think a lot of us have heard and read um, when James Cameron w- was making his film, um, the set obviously was close to, to full scale. There were some changes made, obviously, for, for certain reasons to that. But it was like per- he actually did some experiments from what I've read about how different witnesses got from point A to point B and how quick it would have taken and to try to understand the events. I think taking that same um, approach into a virtual model, as Ken said, is really can lend a lot of um, understanding to the historic events. And it's something I think a lot of people look at and say, oh, you're playing with video games or you're playing with something that's not real. So how can you learn from it? It's like I think it's an outdated perspective. I think historians could really learn a lot from just being able to virtually walk and talk and feel like where the people were. Um, you get that visual context and, and sometimes you read something in their account you thought meant one thing and then you see where they were at and see what they saw. And it's like, OK, now it makes sense where it didn't before. Um, so I think that's a, something that you're going to see a lot more of in the field of, of history in general, not just Titanic. But um, if people have an open mind about it, that's something I think is a modern tool that can greatly help study any range of subjects. I agree. There, There's there's. There's a beauty to being able to see things as they were intended to be seen and to learn from it that way. As a picture is, is great. They always say a picture is worth a thousand words, and it's true. There's a lot you can glean from a photograph. But, you know, when you have the technology to be able to recreate a hallway, a room, a deck, a balcony, a ship, it helps put things into such a greater perspective. Like, I can sit here and speculate on how big that funnel was my entire life. But if you put on a pair of VR glasses and suddenly look over, you're like, oh, oh, okay, that's very large. It's it's very different when you actually have a chance to see something. It, you know, for, you know, lack of being silly, like reality makes it real. It's like, well, yes, of course, that's an obvious statement, but it, it, it does. It, and you don't realize it until you have the opportunity to see something presented that way. Yep. True. Well, I'm... I'm really think, grateful to you both for, sorry, coming on the show and sharing so much of your um, perspective and so much of your um, time with me because, you know, as we've been discussing, there's always things to be learning. And as you guys said, how, what edition of this book is this going to be when you when you do the corrections? Four. The fourth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have to take off my shoes to count. <laughs> but I don't think that's—I don't think that's bad. It shows that you know, as you've mentioned a couple times, you know, there's some people that are very sort of married to their perspective, where it's like, this is the truth, this is how I think, this is what I believe happened, and I'm never going to deviate from it. I believe that one of the healthiest perspectives anyone can take, especially someone studying the past, is to be open to new details. Agree 100%. Well, otherwise you don't really learn anything. No. <laughs> yeah. I think Walter Lord uh, said it, it's a rash man who would set himself up as the final arbiter of what happened on the night the Titanic sank. And I think those were probably some of the best words that were ever written. Um, and I think that's something that Tad and Bill and I have found over the years. Uh, don't ever say there's nothing more to learn when it comes to Titanic because there's always something more to learn. Absolutely. That is very true. And again, thank you guys so much for coming on and talking to me about books, about your research, about your perspectives. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for your guys' time. Well, thank you for uh, having us. And uh, around the anniversary in April, if you're interested, I said we'll be doing another um, live stream event, which Ooh. with Tom and the HFX studio. So that has a live conversation on there. If you have time, we'd love to have you join in on that. Um, if I'd you're interested to. in uh, watching that. Yeah, I'd love to do that. If you send me the info too, I can also post it on my um, social channels so that anyone else who would like to tune in can tune in and hear 
more about what these guys have to say that I was unable to cover in the one hour of time that I have. <laughs> but very appreciative for you inviting us on. It was nice uh, having the conversation. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Words are hard, but uh, what I was trying to say was that was an incredible pleasure, and I'm so honored to be able to talk to the two of them. If you haven't already uh, checked out the book On a Sea of Glass, you definitely should. And you should also get in touch with Kent and with Tad. For Kent, you can find him on his website, which is AtlanticLiners, all one word, dot com. He's also on Facebook as The Atlantic Liners, Facebook.com slash T H E. A-T-L-A-N-T-I-C-L-I-N-E-R-S. You can also find him on Instagram at Atlantic underscore Liners. And on Twitter, he's twitter.com slash Layton. All one word, J-K-E-N-T-L-A-Y-T-O-N. And you can get in touch with Tad on his website, wormstet.com slash Tad Fitch. That is W-O-R-M-S-T-E-D-T dot com slash T-A-D-F-I-T-C-H. He's also on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash author Tad Fitch, all one word. You can find him on Instagram at instagram.com slash Tad dot Fitch. And you can find him on Twitter at twitter.com slash Fitch, F-I-T-C-H underscore Tad. And you also know where to find me, and I'm excited to see you guys in the next one. Bye! Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!